You're listening to Boundless Vancouver Sermon Series 2020, Advent Episode 3, on Isaiah 61. This sermon is entitled, Instead, You Will. Tomorrow is the Electoral College vote. Representatives from the respective states will cast their ballots determined by the general election in November. Over the many days, there have been accusations of voter fraud, court cases, and the general expectancy of change. There is hope because a new president, a new leader, will institute his rule in America. And Isaiah 61 reads like an inauguration speech. In fact, Jesus announces his mission in Luke 4 by quoting this text. So let's explore it. First, who's speaking in Isaiah 61? Well, it's not clear, but it's one of Yahweh's representatives. It's obscure. There are two clues, though, that would indicate who this person will be. This person is authorized, in verse 1, by Yahweh's Spirit, and they're anointed. This conjures images of young David's anointing. 1 Samuel 16.13 reads, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. The text invites us to be alert. Expect some young, spirit-filled future king who will institute a new reign of God. So what is this future king's platform? To understand this, we have to pay attention to the writer's use of repetition. When something's repeated, not only is it poetic, it's necessary to get our attention. So there will be three repetitions we're going to unpack here. First, a series of verbs. Then a series of insteads, and then a series of they wills. The first is the verbs. These infinitive verbs give us an inventory of what the human-powered agent is going to do. He's going to bring, to bind up, to proclaim, to release, to proclaim again, to comfort, to provide, and to give. All these postures are powerful ministries to the weak, the powerless, and the marginalized to restore them to the full function in a community of well-being and joy. And all of these are brought together in the first verb, to bring. This is the verbal form of the gospel. It's an announcement of God's victory and reorganization of public life. A new public health order to set things back to the way they're supposed to be. This is especially good news for the poor. But when will this happen? According to verse 2, the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of the Lord. These apocalyptic timings result in a reverent expectation when God will institute his jubilee from Leviticus 25. Jubilee is a program of economic liberty a restoration of the land, security, stability, and well-being to the community as a whole, to a people too long in jeopardy. That is, it's a community-wide restoration. It's a revelation, a revolution of good news for the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners of darkness, those who mourn and grieve. And now we move to the insteads for these people. Isaiah 61 makes use of the repetition of insteads. Verse 3 reads, 
instead of ashes, instead of mourning, instead of despair. And again in verse 7, instead of your shame, instead of disgrace. The desperate condition of God's people had them facing utter ruin, a city destroyed, society crumbled. What is there to do but mourn and grieve in despair, shame and disgrace? Have you ever thought that despair and grief is a deep expression of hope? It isn't fatalistic. It's a wrestling of how things are and that they're not meant to be that way. Grief is the process of expecting some sort of resolution or change to the present disaster. The lectionary this week links Psalm 126 to Isaiah 61. Psalm 126 reads, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then the nations said, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Walter Brueggemann says, In Christian extrapolation, the transformation is given the shape of crucifixion and resurrection, whereby your pain will turn into joy. There's the old Salvation Army story of a couple who went to plant uh, the work in Wales, and it was not going well. They were ridiculed. Uh, There was no uh, great conversions or success. Their meetings were small, and uh, they weren't really doing well, uh, even mentally. And so they wrote back to headquarters and they said, you need to pull us out. We're not doing well. Uh, There's not fertile ground here. And William Booth wrote them back and he said, try tears. And so they did. They cried over their city. They wept. They prayed. They grieved and mourned. They prayed the Psalms. And a year later, when William Booth came to visit, over 8,000 people were gathered in a crowd to hear the gospel. And many responded, and the work was started from that. Trying tears might be relevant for our day, too. In an age of pandemics, secularism, and theological disruption, our hearts are likely uh, in a different spot. And we need to grasp with our reality and deal with it uh, through some grief, through some tears. And let's remember that verse from 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Or what Walter Brueggemann referred to in John 16, 20. Your pain will turn into joy. That's the Christian resurrection life. And let's look at what that resurrection life is in the third repetition a series of they will and you will. Listen to this. They will be called oaks of righteousness. They will renew the ruined cities. You will be called priests. You will be named ministers. You will feed on wealth. This is a complete reversal of reputation and fortune. Israel will be strong in right living. 
stable. They'll live in safety. Their everyday work will be worship. They will be dispensers of grace and givers of mercy to their neighbors. As a result, they will be productive, wealthy, and a hub of the world's finances. Well, how and why? This is where a new voice enters Isaiah 61. In verse 8, we read, For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. This everlasting covenant reminds me of Jeremiah 31, where the prophet says, In that day of the Lord, nobody's going to say to their neighbor, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, and that he will pour his spirit on all flesh. This is the heart of God, that in the character and policies of the heavenly king, that an earthly kingdom will be established in relationship with God, that he will be their God and they will be his people. James K. Smith wrote a book, How Not to Be Secular. And in it, he asserts from Charles Taylor that a world without God, with its competing interests and its unbridled pursuit of wealth and commodification of all things and people, results in a valueless society. And Craig Gay backs him up. He says, When we lose sight of God, we also lose sight of ourselves. It is the thought of God, after all, that gives substance to words like truth, freedom, justice, and persons, words which lend substance and meaning to life. Without the thought of God, such notions are empty or, at best, only convenient fictions. A completely secular society is therefore not simply godless, but impersonal and inhumane as well. So the revolution is a society with God returning, a personal relationship of the people giving value and meaning to their everyday life and these values. Israel had been depraved by their idolatry, by imitating righteousness and not truly living up to the covenant expectations God had laid out. Without God, Assyria and Babylon had structured society inhumanely, and people lived in poverty, grief, and shame. So how will God initiate his kingdom? Simply, the return of the king. You probably know about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. The Aslan story. There's a white snow queen and the, she's come in and set up her reign. And the world lies dormant, asleep, cold, and in winter. Like winter, her reign is heartless and vindictive. The people wait for the coming of the true king who will break the captivity restore the world, and favor the subjects in righteous living. C.S. Lewis, of course, was using this as an analogy of Jesus, the coming king, Isaiah's suffering servant who would fulfill Isaiah 61. He will reconstitute God's people in a new kingdom. The human figure is coming. There's hope. There's order. And this will be a lot of work for him and those who follow him to make the world right. It will come suddenly, and indeed, it's already happening. God's kingdom is coming. Harvey Cox introduces an illustration about being between the times of the kingdom here, but not yet. 
He likens that Jesus' death and resurrection is like D-Day in World War II. That the decision has been made. That victory is secure. The decision is made. God's people will reign victorious. But that wasn't the end of the war, D-Day. They had to wait till V-Day. And between D-Day and V-Day, there's still decisions that have to be made. And we still have ground to cover. There's a mission to take part in. As Jesus' people, to take on his mission statement in Isaiah 61, a time will come. And just as we learned from Mark 4 about growing seeds and soil, I'll conclude by reading a verse from Isaiah 61, verse 11. A hope that winter will not last forever and that springtime will come. So Isaiah 61, verse 11 reads, For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. So the question is, are you in? Are you a part of Jesus' mission in Isaiah 61? I'd encourage you to read this chapter each day as your mission statement and see what the God Spirit would do in your life and how you will live differently as He loves you and empowers you and sets small missions to love your neighbor and show them the gospel. God bless you.